Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Week in Film Tech. This is Charles Hain. If you're listening to this in the podcast, you have no idea why my voice paused there, but if you're watching on the YouTube channel, you know that right now I'm trying to do that newscaster thing where I'm switching back and forth camera to camera, and that is because today we are going to be talking about, in Gear Cage, the new Shogun 7 touch-switching feature. If you're watching, if you're just listening to the podcast, you're so bored right now. But also, we're going to be talking about the new Quasar RR and R2 lights, uh, and we're going to be talking about Post Lab, and then we've got a Hey Professor, we've got a whole bunch of stuff. This is our last show of the year, so let's hope that we all enjoy this last show, and then we all have a happy holiday season. Top story this week is Quasar Science has released two new lights. Uh, so first off, a little context, who is Quasar Science? So... If you've watched a movie in the last five to ten years, you've seen linear LED tubes. John Wick is covered in them. Uh, you see them in every music video. Linear LEDs. There's a couple big dominant players. I talked about NAND lights a couple weeks ago. There's a lot of fun things I really love about NAND lights. They're sort of in the affordable indie space, the NAND lights. And then at the top end, there's the Quasar Rainbows. And the Asteras. We'll talk about the Asteras another time. Asteras come from Europe, and they have some nice, nifty built-in features, but the Quasar Science Rainbows have been a big hit. It's a Los Angeles company. Um, they are a really nice company, friendly people, and the Rainbows have been a really big hit. And now we have the Rainbow Twos and the Rainbow RRs, the, the so-called double Rainbows. So a little bit of context for what these guys are. These are linear lights, which means it's a tube light. Uh, you know, it looks like an old fluorescent light. And, uh, you know, it comes in two foot and four foot lengths. The original Qua- the Rainbows also come in an eight foot. I've never actually been around the eight foot, but I'm sure that they're out there on some sets, the bigger shows. The four foot is really common. The two foot's really common. These are lights that are RGB, which means you can dial in whatever color you like with, the, you like with them. But the big revision with the R2s, uh, we'll talk about the RRs in a minute. The big revision with the R2s is there's a, a much higher pixel count. So when we're talking about a, a camera, we're talking about pixels, our individual, you know, in a video image, you have 4,000 pixels across. That's 4,000 things you can make individual colors or brighter or darker in a black and white image. The same is true on an LED bulb. If I have 48 pixels on my LED bulb, I can make each one of them an individual color. You know, theoretically, if I had a 4,000 pixel LED bulb, I could play video on it or at least one line of video. And these guys are up to 48 pixels on the 8-footer, 24 pixels on the 4-footer, and that's crazy large number of pixels. Uh, there are competitor tubes out there that are like, ooh, we have 7 pixels, where they take groups of the LEDs and they put them together in the 7 pixels. This is going to be really interesting for a lot of applications. Like, for instance, let's say I want a light, and all I want to do is I want to animate that light so it's moving from one end of the tube to another, right? So maybe I'm doing a car scene, I've got an actor driving, and I want to animate it so it looks like they drive past a light. Um, I don't need to go in and map each every one of those pixels, but by having that many pixels, I can really just program a very nice pass-by out of the light. So I think we're seeing a lot higher number of pixels across the marketplace, and I'm really excited that we're going to see more pixels out of the Quasars. I think that's a super cool thing. That, the, that they are doing. The other thing with Revision 2, and this is where we're getting more into also the double rainbows, is a whole lot of things that used to be accessories are now coming built in. 
So you've now got a whole rail all along the back with a clamp that has a whole bunch of quarter 20 mounts and a whole bunch of accessory mounts to make it easier to mount this light in various places. This used to be something that came separate and now it's sort of a built-in part of the unit. I think this is a response to some market competition. There's some other lights out there that are coming with built-in rails now, and I think this is partially a, let's make these as easy as possible to rig. Now, unlike a couple competitors, Quasar still doesn't do internal batteries. Their take on internal batteries are, you know, you're out there, you're doing a 12-hour shoot, you don't want to have to take the light down to charge it. They work with external batteries, and they have a lot of accessories for, to make it easy to work with V-Lock or Gold Mount or all sorts of other DC power accessories. So Quasar does a whole bunch of stuff in that arena, but then they don't have the internal batteries built in. Then the last thing is the RR, the double rainbow. It's uh, it's a rainbow unit, but twice as wide. That means even the four-footer has 48 pixels. Very large number of pixels. And you're going to get a whole lot more light output because it's twice as wide. So if you're trying to get some brightness out of your linear tube light, you're trying to get some punch out of your linear tube light, you're going to look at the RR. And these are all available now. Christmas, super exciting. All right, story number two. 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 Story number two is PostLab. So if you don't know PostLab, PostLab grew out of a Dutch, I believe it was a Dutch broadcaster, public television station, internal tool for project sharing with more robust team sharing for Final Cut 10. What do we mean by that? So right now, if you want seven editors working on a project, Avid is still the number one tool, especially if those seven editors are not all in the same room. Resolve has really great tools for multiple people working on the same project, but they all need to be on the same server. And that's fine. That totally works. I teach every week in a Resolve setup where we're all in a shared network. And, you know, I haven't done this in a couple of weeks if any of my students are listening, but like I can pull up your project. I can look at it in my I have Resolve Open, you have Resolve Open, we can look at timelines, I can make tweaks to your project. It's super great. It's a robust workflow. It's awesome. However, that only works locally. What PostLab is all about is it's a cloud database, right now just for Final Cut 10, but they're hoping to roll out other projects soon. uh, soon. And it's a cloud database that gives you really robust ability to collaborate among teams with Final Cut Pro 10. Now, why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that because in Final Cut Pro 10, there's really not any way to share among teams. Final Cut 10 is much is really built around the single editor working on a project model, and this broadcaster uh, fell in love with Final Cut 10 and wanted to use it more, and so they needed the ability to share it among teams because it's a really common workflow for professionals. So they went out and they built this special tool set that's a database, cloud-based system. It uses local software and cloud software to make it so that multiple people can all be working on the same Final Cut 10 library at the same time. Now, this is super cool. They've announced that they're also going to start uh, supporting other platforms soon. My personal vote is Resolve, because obviously I use Resolve the most. But, you know, if, if they bring some of these tools for Premiere, I also think it's going to be really useful, because collaboration among teams is a big deal. We're not always able to get all the teams together in one room like we like to, and the ability to get everybody across multiple rooms all together in one, I think, is a really exciting thing. I think we should all be really enthusiastic if PostLab is able to roll this out, and we're all excited to see it. Okay, up next, Gear Cage. If you're watching on YouTube, this will be slightly cooler. Sorry, pure podcast audience. I have a much larger pure podcast audience, but I do have some YouTubers 
and it's fun to make the video. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you see in my hand is a Shogun 7. And you can see on that Shogun 7 there's three images up here right now. And I can switch between them as I edit by just touching the screen. So what's a Shogun 7? So if you haven't used an Atomos in the past, an Atomos is a monitor recorder company. They'll probably make some other stuff, but for now they make monitor recorders. So it's a monitor, 5-inch, 7-inch, that has a recorder built in, so you can record video internally in it. It's, it's a very nice little unit. Um, I'm going to be honest, monitor recorders are something I initially didn't get. They first started hitting the streets, and I was like, but, but why? Like, you want to record a better file format, just get a better camera? But then, you know, the beauty of a monitor recorder is the Shoguns all record ProRes RAW, ProRes 444, ProRes 444XQ, like these big, robust file formats, and they record it natively, so you don't have to transcode and post. You can just start editing right away. That's a really nice feature. But also, as new cameras come out, they work with a variety of camera platforms. So, for instance, uh, you know, I record regularly on an Atomos uh, Shogun uh, Inferno, that's usually hooked up to my Fuji X-H1, but now I've got some Blackmagic cameras in the house, so I just plugged all the Blackmagic cameras in, and it's recording straight to ProRes on those. You know, I did a Sigma FP review, it records straight to that. There's all these possibilities for what it does that sort of come together to be super-duper cool that also last with you camera to camera. Like, I bought the Shogun 7 back when I had an X-T2, or my Shogun Inferno when I had an X-T2. Sold the X-T2, X-H1 came along, affordable cameras... And I've been really happy with it. So what's so interesting about the Shogun 7? The Shogun 7 allows you to have up to four. I only have three. But one, two, three. That's my macro lens. Get something in focus there. One, two, three, because I only have three SDI-capable cameras here today. And one of them's on my desk because I only have two tripods in the office. Up to four cameras running SDI cables into it, recording all four signals... And as you see me switching on this thing, it's recording a separate record channel of that. So I'm getting all my ISOs recorded. It also takes the analog audio in, wraps it up in there. And so I've got all of my isolated channels recording into my thing simultaneously live. I've got all that data. And uh, I think this is going to be a huge hit with a lot of different filmmaking use cases. If you're in live event and you've not been able to afford like a really nice switcher, uh, now you can, for under $2,000, you can have a switcher that... It's just a touchscreen switcher, and away you go. What's really nice is it records the ISOs and an XML. So you can take those ISOs and the XML and bring them into your software, and then uh, it'll bring it up as uh, linked back to the ISOs. So if you want to extend a cut or shorten a cut or make changes to the live edit, you can do that in post. It's an insane price point to do this. And it's a real technical feat because these cameras aren't genlocked together. Genlocking means it would make it so that all the shutters were opening and closing at exactly the same time, right? Because even when you're shooting video, you're only, the shutter is, you know, it's still dividing it in 24 frames per second. It's dividing it equally. And right now, these cameras, they might be out of sync with each other. We just don't know. I can practically guarantee they are out of sync with each other. The shutters are out of sync with each other. The When it's dividing the 24 frames per second up out of sync with each other because we haven't jam synced them together. So traditionally, it's hard to record multiple cameras that aren't jam synced together. It's kind of a super impressive feat that they are able to go and jam sync these three sync, these up to four, I only have three in front of me, but up to four signals together and lock them in and record them. So the other space I think is going to be really big is the space we're also talking about the YouTube space. You're a YouTuber, you're recording alone, video things. It's usually one person to camera, but now you're going to be able to rig up three angles 
right? Four angles. I don't know how long I'm going to hang on to the Shogun before I got to send it back, but if I get it all rigged up properly, I might even try and do four angles in a, in a future week, and then the ability to be cutting that yourself while you go, I bet you there's going to be some people who are really good at, like, maintaining, maintaining eye contact and switching between their angles and doing that thing. I'm clearly not, but I'm trying to be. Can I maintain eye contact and switch? Maybe I can, maybe I can't. We will find out as time goes on. So that is a super cool thing that I that I had in my hands this week, the Shogun 7, which just got multicam switching. Shogun 7's been out six months. Multicam switching just came to it this week with a firmware update, and uh, I so far I've been very impressed. It's been super fun, and uh, it took me sort of a second to figure a couple of the settings out, but once I got everything dialed in, um, I think it's a really interesting sort of thing for multi-camera applications. So if you've been thinking about a Shogun, you should probably just get the 7 in case you think this might ever be in your workflow in the future. Uh, hey, Professor from Jamie on Twitter, who is an actor. He shoots his additions on a T3i. He has a backdrop and three lights. But how can he make it look grander? So this is a really great question, and self-shooting actor auditions is definitely something where... So first off, Jamie, one thing I'm going to say is, to be honest, part of the uphill battle you are facing, and this might have gotten better in the last couple of years, but the last time I did like a big, it's been two years since I've been involved in like a big casting process on something, um, the online platforms that uh, casting agents and whatnot use for sharing this, the video quality is so low that you could take like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You could take a clip of that and upload it to the the these video platforms they use for casting, and it would still look terrible. So part of the uphill battle all actors are facing as they do these casting videos is it's getting uploaded to an incredibly low bit depth platform where, you know, the real goal is just trying to pay attention to the performance, not to the not to the not to the appearance. But there's a couple tricks I think you can do to make it look better. The first is do as much compression as you physically can on your side. So a lot of times these cameras, the T3i, they shoot to H.264. That might still be a really nice format to upload it directly, but you should maybe do some tests with your next self-tape where you compress it a little bit on your end. Like maybe it's a maybe it's a 100 megabyte file. Maybe see if you can get it down to 24 megabytes, something like that. Really see on your end how small you can make the file before you start to notice the quality dip on your end. And then make the file slightly bigger than that. That's because a lot of these online platforms are going to recompress your video. And so we all have this idea of like, oh, if I can put the biggest thing up there, then the recompression is going to look good. But I've had some good results with certain platforms in the past of, I really optimized my file, and then it gets less of their compression up on the cloud end, because sometimes that cloud compression, if they're doing lots of videos, it's not the most robust, and you can really dial in exactly what you want it to look like. The second thing I would say, and this is probably a good episode if you're watching it on YouTube, is for me, a little bit of contrast never hurts. I think actors, you should generally try and light yourself as soft as possible, but soft doesn't necessarily mean flat. So this is a relatively soft light. You can look across my big old bald dome, and you can see that the shadow changes very gradually to highlight. However, you can notice that the angle it's coming from is very far off to the side. I think you can still see my face. I think it's probably still, I hope it's a flattering angle. I lit myself. It better be flattering. But it uh, that softness combined with that side light, that chiaroscuro, I think makes you pop a little bit better. The other thing I would think about is your backdrop color. There's what's called fashion gray, 
Uh, I might have a fashion grade backdrop somewhere in my collection of backdrops behind me, but I personally try to... I will use fashion gray occasionally. Fashion gray is really a neutral, and the purpose of a neutral is to show off the product well. But, you know, depending on what your skin tone is, I try and find a color that, like... I mean, the color behind me right now is probably too saturated, but I try and find a color that's a little... that has a little bit of color to it, like a very light blue, a very pale... Uh, kind of color in there because I think that color contrast is going to make you pop. This is Savage Seamless. It's not very expensive. Um, so I think a little color pop in the background if the, if that's allowed, which I think it is, and uh, a little bit of side light so that it's uh, that you're getting a little bit more of that contrast because the other thing you've got to remember it, uh, is when people watch those videos, you're watching them in tiny little viewers. I mean, it, every casting platform is different, but I've done so many castings where like I don't even, like, the full-frame button is, like, very obscure. And, like, you're doing most of the watching in these tiny little videos where you can see people's credits beneath it or, or there's a whole grid of people. So a little bit of chiaroscuro to pop, make you pop, show your features a little bit, I think is not an inappropriate way to set the video up so that you're well set up to thrive. Those would be the big things I would think about. Obviously, I, I hope you're already thinking about things like exposure, cameras like the T3i. You, you want to, quote-unquote, shoot to the right which means you want to make them as bright as possible without overexposing. So you open, open up, open the aperture, and you dial in your lighting until it's almost overexposed. You use something like a, a waveformer or something like that to dial it in. So that has been this week in the Week in Film Tech. I wish everybody happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Habari uh, Ganani for Kwanzaa. Uh, happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year. I got a baby, so New Year will be sleep for me, but that's going to be great, and I'm really looking forward to it. And, yeah, I will see everybody in the new year where we'll be back with all sorts of continuing week in film tech. Everybody have a good one. <laughs>